We're going to continue to worship together. Uh, my name is Wynn Wood. I serve as one of the elders. I'm going to be reading the scripture this morning, which comes to us through Philippians 4, 4 through 9, and I think it's going to appear behind me. If not, you can turn in your app or your uh, Bible. So let's uh, listen together to God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Join with me in prayer if you would. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we can rejoice in you always because you have met our deepest need in fixing the problem of sin and giving us Christ who died and was perfect in a way that we could never be perfect on our very best day. God, thank you for that, that you have met uh, that need. And God, meeting that need, that you will meet every need that we have, that you love us deeply, that you would give us your son, that you would... Uh, really come and, and care for us as we especially this time of year are most keenly aware with Christmas and having just celebrated Thanksgiving. God, we just thank you for all that you do. I just thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, bless this time. pray that uh, you would really speak through Rich as he brings your word to us. Prepare our hearts to hear, to be ready to listen, and to have it affect our lives in the way you would have it to. In Jesus' name, amen. So oven-roasted turkey, honey-baked ham, corn casserole, steamed asparagus, garlic mashed potatoes, and more pie than you could ever eat in one sitting. For many of us, this was our experience this past Thursday for Thanksgiving. Loved ones from all around the country gathered together to uh, just join in, in Thanksgiving and, and kind of celebrating life and what God has given to us together. Uh, but all over especially good food. Now, if you were able to celebrate Thanksgiving this year, you can probably recall your favorite food even right now. I know for me, one of my favorite meals, or one of my favorite courses, rather, uh, that my mom makes every year is um, cranberry sauce, homemade cranberry sauce. I know it sounds a little weird, but like every spoonful is just so complex. It starts off with this tangy and tart taste and ends with a sweet and savory resolve. Now, cranberry sauce or something like that is more of an acquired taste. I know many of you even might be thinking, like, cranberry sauce? Why cranberry sauce? It's kind of weird. But granted, our taste buds, they mature and they develop over time. And as you expand your appetite, you learn to actually appreciate those finer intricacies more and more. And so we move beyond this, you know, this cake tastes bad or these muffins taste bad kind of mentality to oh, wow, this is actually a really complex and amazing food. 
and it becomes more robust, our, our taste buds and our palate over time. We learn to appreciate and become more grateful for artisanship and the art of making good food in particular. Now, in the same way, when we look at the letter to the Philippians, the first few times you might come around to the book, it might come across as this simple and straightforward letter. And in many ways it is. But when you look more closely, especially with heightened senses more and more in time, you begin to pick up this intonation more clearly of Paul's voice, this tone of voice as he verbally admonished his dearly beloved friends, his crown and his joy, as Philippians 4 says. See, much like taste testing at Thanksgiving time, if we listen carefully to Paul's choice of words in Philippians, we begin to hear a complexity in his emotions. Complexity. So for instance, think of chapter 1. And if you want to turn there, you can. But chapter 1, verses 3 and 12 and 18 in particular, you get this clear sense of thanksgiving, that he's thankful for what God is doing in the midst of this church in Philippi. As you move through to Philippians 2, you begin to see more of this sense of Christ and his splendor and the fact that you know, we are to actually, as Christians, have the same mind of Christ that he has given to us, that Christ himself bore our sins and, and died for us, and we're to be thankful, and even in prayer because of that, out of thankfulness. And when you look to Philippians 3 in particular, uh, as Pastor Don was preaching last week, we gain this deep sense of peace in our belonging to Christ. And it ushers us into this more intentional lifestyle to love as Christ loved and to serve as Christ served as a result of these things in the gospel. And so as we now come to Philippians 4 this morning in our series, we begin to see the culmination of these things. Rejoicing, prayerfulness, and intentionality. In Philippians 4, 4 through 9 in particular, I want us to notice that Paul continues to build upon these same things as he commands the church to be rejoicing always, to be in prayer, and to live with intentionality. And so the first point for today's sermon is that very thing, rejoice always. And this comes to us from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 5 in particular. So if you will turn back with me to Philippians 4. And starting in verse 4, consider these words again. Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Now, if you're like me, when you think and you hear the word rejoice, um, honestly, you might think of Christmas time. You might think of singing. You, know, you might think of the Christmas carols like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And usually this word uh, is something that we don't often use. It's not in our common everyday vernacular these days. Again, you might see it at Christmas time and hear it in our Christmas carols. You might see it painted in red and green around you know, stores that you go visit, Walmart or Sam's Club or whatnot. But it's not something we often say. So what does the word rejoice mean itself? Well, first of all, the theme of rejoicing is actually all throughout Scripture and it's meant to be more of a perennial thing rather than something we just think about at Christmas time. But again, think of this word rejoice. If it helps to think of it this way, the word rejoice is actually just simply the verb form of the word for joy. Uh, this word in the original language in the Greek 
that's used twice here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That word rejoice is simply the verb form of kara, joy. And joy itself is also related to another Greek word called charis, which means grace. The two are extremely similar, kara, charis. You can probably hear even the similar sound of the word. And I think it's important to note that when we think of joy itself, we ought to think also of what grace is attached to that. In other words, joy is a response of the heart to God's grace. The reformer John Calvin once put it this way, that joy is actually the quiet gladness of the heart as one contemplates the grace, the saving grace of that, of Christ Jesus. So this begs a couple of questions for each one of us then. You know, why am I, why are we not marked by this kind of rejoicing more often? And why is it that we can go throughout our days without this gladness of heart, as John Calvin put it, this joy? My friends, the answer is plain and it's simple. In this life, we struggle with a spiritual lethargy, as I've put it before, a spiritual kind of laziness, inertia that brings us back down. In our struggle with sin, we can become dissatisfied with the things of this world, and we can then impose that kind of dissatisfaction upon God himself wrongly. We can become so disenfranchised with our various employments and you know, the things that we do in this life even, that we tend to trudge through life monotonously as a result of this sin. We can go through trying seasons in life where our patience has been long tested, and we can lose sight of that glorious final chapter, that final chapter in life that awaits us as Christians, that final chapter where we will be freed from sin and its entanglements forever. Now, I'd venture to suggest that our, our lack of joy in these certain seasons directly corresponds to what iteratively consumes our minds. I mean, if our minds are contemplating the glorious riches of Christ in the gospel, we will find it hard to lose heart. But if our minds are inundated and overburdened by the cares of this life, then the loss of such joy is sure to follow. In other words, we need to be soaking ourselves in gospel-centered community. This is just one reason among so many that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together for corporate worship every week. We need to be summoned regularly to drink from the fountain of life that is Christ himself. As long as the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed here at Grace, our time of worship, it will fuel you and fill you and satisfy you with a renewed sense of joy. Now, of course, we shouldn't come to church for the sole purpose of being served. But if we come and if we listen to the word of God as it's faithfully preached and proclaimed, we will walk away being satisfied by Christ. Now, that's easy enough to do on Sunday mornings, you know, coming and being a part of this. But what about the day-to-day? The answer to this is Christ himself. See, Christ himself answers this spiritual lethargy that we are all prone to in the gospel of grace. Notice how Paul in Philippians 4 didn't simply direct the Christians in Philippi to you know, choose happiness, as self-help might tell us to do nowadays, or to put on a friendly facade with one another. 
Rather, he told them to rejoice always in the Lord. When we consider the fact that we as Christians belong to the Lord, both in body and in soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself even to the point of death, death upon our Roman cross, as Philippians 2 puts it, to secure us as his own possession, then we will find him to be the source of our joy. See, the Lord Jesus is himself the capital A answer to the wanderings of our hearts. So again, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This kind of rejoicing is altogether fitting, and as Paul puts it here in verse 5, it's reasonable for those who have faith in Christ. It's rational. It belongs to that. See, the Lord is at work, and he is near to us. So Christian, do you long to be characterized by this kind of living, this joy-filled, rejoicing lifestyle, as it were? The Word of God instructs us to rejoice, and here's the answer, by being in a steady stream of prayer. And this brings us to our second primary uh, command that, that Paul gives to us here in this passage, and that is to be in prayer. This comes to us in verses 6 through 7, which say this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and by supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, nearly 10 years ago, I began work in a counseling, a Christian counseling office at Liberty University, and it was just such a blessing to serve as the primary point of contact for a lot of the students, especially the young men coming in. Uh, every day, uh, it was truly a blessing to be a part of what God was doing in their lives. Many would come in uh, seeking support for uh, their own lives and their walk with Christ, seeking to overcome destructive habits and um, handle various forms, especially of anxiety. Now, in the context of higher education, many of you all, especially younger uh, juniors and seniors, you know this as it's coming upon you, uh, higher education itself is very stress-inducing. But well beyond this season of life, this time in college and all, and maybe this is just anecdotal or experiential, but I've seen almost an increased level of anxiety in our modern culture over the past 10 years since working in that counseling office and being in that collegiate atmosphere. But see, the Word of God instructs us that we do well to respond to our anxieties as they come with prayer and with supplication, bringing our request before God. But as I touch upon this very sensitive topic, just briefly upon anxiety, um, I want to make an important caveat, and that is this, um, that I want us all to know here that we who serve here at Grace uh, firmly believe that people are right to seek professional diagnosis counseling, and medical treatment for clinical anxiety and depression. We as humans are truly complicated beings, and it is good and right to place ourselves under the scope of professionals who can provide care for us and bring us back to a place of health. Now, it's in the very nature of God's providence and kindness to give people who are care providers like this into our lives to but it's also in his providence and kindness to speak to the matters of the heart through Scripture. 
Now, I want us to note um, that even as you look at, let's say, Psalm 139, you see very explicitly that God cares for us as holistic beings. He's the very one who formed us and who knit us together and who cares for us and knows us intimately. So when we look at Philippians 4, 6 through 7, I want us to take particular note of the superlative, the intentional superlative language that's being used here. Um, Because words like anything, everything, and all, when it says do not be anxious in that context, it refers to a general, a general spiritual elixir that tends to all parts of our lives. And see, the result of bringing such requests to God in prayer is knowing the peace of God more fully. It's this peace of God that transcends understanding that gives us hope in the midst of fear, strength in the midst of frailty, and joy, or that quiet gladness of heart, even in the midst of sorrow. Now, throughout Scripture, one of the most common commands that God gave to his people is, do not fear, fear not. God knows that we are a people who wrestle with earthly fears and anxieties and distrust. But the greatest reason for hope that he gives us in the midst of our uncertainties is twofold. And it's this, I am the Lord your God and I am with you. Think, to, uh, think back to Matthew 6, 25 through 26 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke these same words to those who followed him. He comforted them, a broken and weary people, with these words. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? So do not be anxious. Now the paradox here is that we can, and we are, to be certainly responsible for what God has entrusted to us. This shouldn't lead us to a careless way of living, as it were. But this is key. We are not to lose sight of God and his dealings with us as we go about our lives. It is ultimately out of a sense of knowing God's care and his provision and his nearness to us that we can live without being overburdened by the cares of this world. See, what matters at the end of the day is not how big our 401k is or how many people we might have influenced that day before, but rather what God himself, our heavenly father, thinks about us, what he says about us. Concerning Philippians 4, the theologian Matthew Henry stated this, that we can stand fast and and with confidence in this life because, as he put it, our conversation is being done in heaven. And we look for the Savior to come from heaven and to fetch us back to heaven. Even now in this moment, our Lord Christ is interceding over us and praying over us. So when we lift up our souls to him in prayer, um, we are actually, in essence, conversing with him in faith. We're trusting in his good and his pleasant care for our souls. Psalm 25 tells us the following about God himself, the nature of God. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So Christian, know that God walks with you. Delight in the fact that God, your God, cares for you and wants to hear you pray to him. And as natural as breathing in and out is to us, we ought to be marked as Christians by this cadence of prayer and supplication, prayer and supplication, lifting up our souls to God and then bringing our requests to him in prayer. And when we live in such a rhythm of faith, then we will know that peace of God that transcends and surpasses all understanding. And it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The earthly cares of this world will not so easily overwhelm us if our minds and our hearts are fixated upon the living Christ who is our peace. As Isaiah 26 verse 3, as we read this morning, tells us concerning God, God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixated on you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And this brings us to our final point this morning, that just as we are directed in Philippians 4 to rejoice always and to be in prayer, we are also to live with intentionality. And we can find this in verses 8 through 9. Consider this final set of instruction in these two verses, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Think and practice. Now, if you're familiar with the context of Philippians, you know that Paul wrote these words while in a Roman prison. But this wasn't the first time he had been confined in prison. (laughs) See, when you look at the context of Philippians, you actually, in the book of Acts, Acts 16 in particular, begin to get a clearer sense of what Paul himself was going through. See, Paul in Acts 16 had received a call from the Lord to preach the gospel to those in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece and beyond. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and more than likely Luke as well, uh, the gospel writer, quickly obeyed and they traveled to that region toward Greece. Their first landing place was actually in the city of Philippi itself a leading district in that area of Macedonia. And Luke recorded in Acts 16, verse 13, that they immediately began searching for worshipers of the living and true God. As they were doing that, they happened upon a group of women who were praying together, and uh, most notably, Lydia was in their company, uh, a businesswoman, someone of high stature and esteem. And as the gospel of Jesus was received by her, she, along with her entire family, her whole household, were baptized. And the good news of Christ's atoning death for sin and resurrection continued to advance in that area. Now, the Lord sovereignly worked to build his church there in Philippi, uh, rescuing a young woman even later in Acts 16 uh, who was a slave and who was possessed by a demon. 
a young woman who is being manipulated even by her slave owners and her oppressors for monetary gain. And upon um, you know, rescuing her from this, as God worked a miracle in her life and freed her from this demon possession, the magistrates, the, you know, the supposed judge or, or judges of that area were angry with Paul and Silas, and they threw them into prison, saying, you know, how dare you disturb our business by rescuing this young woman? So they're thrown into prison, and yet we know the story. They couldn't help but sing or rejoice and pray and bring their request before God. They were overwhelmed with joy even in their imprisonment and couldn't help but share this glorious news of Christ even in the midst of a most tired situation, being unjustly charged and thrown in prison. But they continued to pray fervently to God as it talks about in Acts 16, verse 25. Now this caught the ears and the attention of their fellow prisoners who marveled at such abnormal behavior. And when God miraculously later that night rescued them from their imprisonment, even the jailer was convinced of the reality of the saving grace of Christ. He was convinced of his own need for repentance and salvation through Christ. Now, Paul, Silas, and the others continued their work of fortifying the church at Philippi from that point forward. They remained dear to his heart as he continued his apostolic ministry. Paul's ministry to that church was peculiar in that they saw firsthand his suffering um, for the sake of the gospel. But what they had learned and received and heard and seen in Paul, as Philippians 4.8 says, uh, was really a life of faithful and intentional devotion to Christ. This is why Paul, in Philippians 4.9, encouraged them to remember this example that he even put in front of them and to practice this kind of selfless devotion to Christ. Now, selfless Intentional devotion to Christ had made a mark on the lives of those in the church at Philippi. And may that continue to be true of us. May we also be men and women in our community who strive to love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with what we think about and what we practice, with all that he's given to us. If you will, turn back with me to Philippians 4 verse 8. He says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When you think about the gospel, Christ himself is the perfect match for all these things. See, Christ himself is the one who is faithful and true. He is the one who is pure and highly esteemed, just and lovely, commendable, and most excellent. And when the spiritual eyes of our hearts are fixated upon this Christ with awe and splendor, the cares of this world will begin to pale in comparison. Christ is himself our mighty Prince of Peace, who has made peace by the blood of his cross for sinners like us, bringing peace between a holy God and we who are so unworthy. So as we conclude, may we derive our joy from this knowing Christ. May we lift up our souls to God in prayer all the more often, knowing that he cares for us. And may we live intentionally, 
as we love, as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, with that, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are truly our good and merciful and gracious God. And we thank you that we have that sweet redemption through Christ, our Lord, and that knowing him is truly uh, what we are made for. We thank you, God, that you are the one who loved us with an everlasting love, who sought us, who bought us, and who brings us to God. We thank you, Jesus, for uh, this sweet salvation, and we ask that as we continue in our time of worship, that you would continue to be made much of, Lord. Um, we thank you for this time that you've given us your word. We pray that our eyes, our spiritual eyes of our hearts would be um, fixed upon you as we go throughout our day. And we pray all this in Christ's holy and mighty and powerful name. Amen.